Because we were meeting in as busy a place as Trafalgar Square, I asked my guest this week what I should be on the lookout for. What did he look like? And he described himself as looking something like a fighter for the French resistance. And this week's whole episode has a touch of the underground about it. From the corpse on the tube to bears on the loose, we're investigating London urban legends. It's the 25th of April 2015. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. This is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds You ain't never seen the light before Just a stone throw from your front door Hey baby, stood out me See the of air, land and the sea Some creep, some saw Down the road, jam store My heart aches for some far off place Sun streaming down from an azure sky onto us where we are at the top of the mall. And uh, I'm with a person today who, on such a delectable day weather wise, has chosen to meet me wearing a dark trench coat. And I rather feel that sets the tone for the meeting ahead. This is Scott Wood. He is the co organiser of the London Fortean Society and author of London Urban Legends The Corpse on the Tube. Hi, Scott. Hello there. It is a, it is a light trench coat. <laughs> I want to know first of all, and I've tried. Obviously, I've tried to do a bit of research and make a sense of this. Tried to answer the question for myself, but I can't quite get a handle on uh, what Fortean means. Okay, um, if you are, or if you ask every single different Fortean there is, you'll get at least two different answers from each of them. Essentially, there was uh, a late nineteenth-century, early twentieth-century writer called Charles Fort who wrote four rather unique books, some of which he researched while living in London. Um, about the way science views nature and the way science views the world, flaws in scientific research and thinking and the prejudice that scientists bring to their researches. Um, And he incorporated a lot of things you could think of as paranormal into that, like psychic ability, rains of blood, and strange lights being seen in the sky. He was one of the first people to think that lights in the sky were people from another planet. Um, he gathered some followers, not deliberate. Some people just decided to follow him. He was actually tricked into going to the first ever meeting of the London of the Fortean Society in in New York. He was an American writer, and the Fortean Society published a magazine called Doubt for a number of years. And a few years later, in the 1970s, some uh, English Forteans started a magazine called the Fortean Times. It was originally called the News, but then they called it the Fortean Times, as they were mainly inspired by Charles Fort's writing. From then on, his Fortean has evolved into an, an idea, essentially, of being sort of non-dogmatic about unusual things. You're neither a, a believer or a harsh sceptic. Uh, really, both of those things are, are trends that pass through. And what you really look at is the data in a, an imaginative and hopefully slightly humorous way. Ah, okay. So I was I was uh, struggling and, and failing really to ally your line of thinking as a society with rationalism or scepticism, and I, I see where there's a bit of a difference there. Temperamentally, we're, we're very similar to sceptics more than say a believer in a sense, uh, because science itself is a, a true scientist accepts that what they do is an evolving process. Uh, they all scientists do not know the answers now, and all Fortians accept that we do not have the answers. Probably more. Uh, different, more by temperament than uh, attitude, as it were. But we're certainly more more like sceptics. But we are more eclectic, more open-minded, and far slower to damn, to be honest. We'll jump into London stuff in just a sec, but on the homepage of the Fortean Society 
website, what sort of mixture of things can be seen? Well, we run, uh, it was m- monthly meetings in a pub. We've just started doing meetings at Conway Hall as well. Our next meeting event is on the 30th of April. That's uh, a man who faked a dead fairy and pretended to find it in Derbyshire. And the media storm that happened after that was that he essentially created a hoax and the hoax has taken its own life over the YouTube and various other places. Uh, he's talking about how, how he did it, why he did it, and the strange things that happened to him afterwards. I don't quite know yet about the strange things. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that. After that, we've got Professor David Hand speaking at Conway Hall on the improbability principle, sort of a, a, a scientific idea on why unusual things happen, like coincidences and miracles. We've put the talk on once before. It was incredibly popular. It does feature proof that you can be struck by lightning twice and explain how people can win with the same lottery numbers and how psychics sometimes can appear to be right. It's a really interesting talk. Well, your book is all about urban legends, and uh, I feel like there's only a tenuous link between what you've been talking about and, and that, unless uh, unless you can make that connection. Well, we're a, we're a broad non-church, the Fortians. Um, I, I started as a, as a very young person interested in ghosts and UFOs, believing all of it, and dropping in and out of interest, and generally evolving my understanding of it until... I got to a point where I understood that they are mainly stories and narratives rather than actual physical events. So I became a lot more interested in urban legends and folklore rather than going out and finding ghosts or trying to catch a, an alien in a big butterfly net. Urban legends aren't to do so much with science, you could argue. It's a, it's a vernacular culture. And what I do is just, look, and what other folklorists do, is look at the stories that people tell and how they appear in the media and in, and in, in fiction and other things and interpret them and trace them find out how people are saying that because these stories are very rarely true and, and why people are telling that what are their motiva- motivation for telling a story like the corpse on the tube or the suicidal sculptor if we were to pick the prime example of this Chinese whispers effect what would it be? Ah, well, there's, there, there is plenty um, the corpse on the tube itself is a, a, an old old story that works very well in contemporary London um, the, the, the kernel of it is each, each version is different is a young woman gets on the London Underground late at night, she's a student heading home back to, heading back to her halls of residence and the carriage is empty except for three people who look quite dodgy there's two men with a woman in the middle who looks completely out of it, either really drunk or completely on drugs I've already told you the title of the urban legend but she thinks she doesn't want to sit on her own in the carriage because she doesn't know who else is going to get on so she sits opposite this shifty looking trio after a little while, um, a man gets on, a professional, middle-aged, neatly-dressed man gets on, sits down next to her and starts acting very, very strangely. Starts pretending that he knows her, saying, Hello, how are you? Uh, I haven't seen you for ages. Um, how have you been? And then leans in close and whispers, Get off at the next stop with me. The young woman is obviously alarmed by this, but she thinks that the people sitting opposite her do look a bit shifty. They're possibly criminals or drug addicts. And if, she, if this man is a bit of a, unusual, there'll be someone on this platform to help her out. So she gets off the tube with this uh, professional middle-aged man who reveals that he is, in fact, a doctor. And she's very lucky because the young woman between the two shifty-looking men was dead. He knew this because he's a doctor, but also when he got on the train, he saw that there was a pair of scissors sticking out the back of her skull. And the two dodgy-looking men were transporting her across... London on the London Underground possibly as a way to dispose of her corpse or move her somewhere else or just to freak out people travelling on the tube that's the kernel of the story, there's different versions there's versions on trains 
the New York version's a bit different where there's uh, somebody staring at a woman on, on the subway. Um, this being New York, not London, the woman gets up and slaps the staring man across the face and he's then found to be a dead drunk who died of a heart attack on the, tr- on the train and he'd be travelling around the subway system for a while. There's, um, there's earlier versions, also from New York, where it's uh, a brother and his two sisters going into London, Ontario, so a Canadian version, on a stagecoach before Christmas in the, the late 18th century, early 19th century. Three or four rogues get on the stagecoach as well. One of their companions appears again to be very drunk. It's a man this time. And at each stop at the stagecoach, one of the rogues gets off, says, Good night, everyone. Good night, John. Hope you get safely until only John, the very drunk individual, is left. There, the brother, with the, the man with the two sisters, checks on John to see how he is, to wake him up to let him know he shouldn't miss his stop. Where he finds that John has had his throat cut and he's being abandoned on the stagecoach by the people who've murdered him. Only on a technicality do you get away with that still being a London urban legend, because it's a different London. It, it, that's probably how the story's migrated so easily, but like I said, it's appeared in New York. It's also a version told from the point of view of the people transporting the corpse. It's told on a train in Sicily. I think this demonstrates that you, know, you could write a book about urban legends told in London, but it's going to look quite similar to a book about urban legends told in another place because, because these are, Swedish people call them wandering stories. The, the, the kernel of the story is, is the same, but you change the location, you change the, the things in the story to make it appear more immediate to the people you're telling it to. So now, have, have you tested that theory to any depth? I may have tried to invent an urban legend. It's not got very far yet. <laughs> uh, it, would it be appropriate to share your urban legend? It's, no, because you, you want it to seem real. You want it to be doing bit, the rounds anonymous. It, has, it was something we made up and wrote on the internet a few years ago and has since appeared in a book about haunted pubs in London. <laughs> so it's getting somewhere. It's not a very strong one. It's not, a, it's not, a very, it's not got a very good narrative, which urban legends have. Um, and it, has, it hasn't got the sort of the need part of, to tell the story. The need part of the, uh, of the corpse on the tube is the idea that you don't know who you're travelling with. Um, on public transport that's why it's on a stagecoach or on a train or on the subway or on the, on the, or on the tube because you genuinely don't know who you're crammed in on the, in that enclosed space I think the corpse on the tube is to is to highlight it could be anyone they could be criminals they could be corpses and it's very layered as well that story from the title you wouldn't guess the twists and turns of it I was kind of expecting one of those London underground lost property stories of the, <laughs> of the amusing things that sometimes turn up what other sort of examples of legends and maybe ones that so far as you know are specific to this London would come to mind well I can think of some that certainly have started in London we're not far away from the statue of Charles I um, yes, the, the only reason I should say we, we agreed to meet at uh, Charles I and we're surrounded by by obviously traffic, the sirens that you've been hearing, a crowd of French tourists and, and wind aplenty, and we thought, no. But if you if you could imagine, we're standing by that statue, <laughs> surrounded by French tourists and buses, and one small Sean the Sheep dressed up as Nelson. You could look at this amazing bronze sculpture of Charles I, looking down uh, Whitehall, possibly overlooking the site where he was executed, which is a bit cruel. He's just on the edge of Trafalgar Square, which itself is a place for British military imperial heroes. We'll talk about that in a moment. The statue was cast during the reign of Charles I. It's quite old. It was cast in 1633. But then um, it was hidden for a number of years because the Civil War happened and there was uh, the, the Commonwealth. I, I, thought, I thought you were about to make that, sound, uh, make that even crueler than 
him being executed and then the statue being placed no, there. I no, thought no, it would be him good. being executed in front of his own statue. It's, it's still got its head on. So <laughs> that, it, was, it was hidden by sympathisers and people who made, wanted to make sure the statue wasn't desecrated. Because during that time, because of his execution, Charles I was seen as a martyr. So the, the statue, which is taken from life to some extent, would have become a, a sort of relic. You don't hear a lot about that side of the story. The, on the day he's executed, there are, I think there is, there's a ceremony in London, in this area, to commemorate the life of Charles I, and it does get a little bit... Obviously, they're, they're, he, was a, he was a Protestant monarch, but it does get a little bit um, saintly, in a sense. But, go forward about uh, just over 100 years, uh, just under 100 years, in fact, it's all over, the statue's back up, and it's, it's here on, on the top of Whitehall in the Mall. And... There's a Frenchman, uh, César La Saucière, I think his name is, something like that. He wrote. He's got a book. He had a book published. I'm going, I'm going to withdraw your overcoat for that. <laughs> you're, you're no longer an honorary Frenchman. Another Frenchman crops up in a minute as well. So yeah, I'm, I am now not wearing my overcoat. Um, he writes. He has a book published. There's a number of letters from London, um, written in like, the uh, late eight, mid, sort of mid 18th century, 1725, where he repeats a story he's heard on the street. The story is that the sculptor um, who cast the bronze statue looked at it with great pride. It's, it's described in a, the book where I found this story as the finest equestrian statue in London. And with great pride, the sculptor looked on his works and saw how beautiful it was and how fine Charles's moustache appears in the statue, and it does appear very, very finely. And the unveiling's going to happen, and he's very excited, and he's very proud. And then, in horror, he realises that he's forgotten to put the girdle underneath the horse of the statue the girdle is the strap that goes around the horse's stomach to stop the saddle slipping off and the statue and the, the sculptor is so mortified by this that he goes off and kills himself and uh, Le Saucer, uh spits in his letter how typical of an over-emotional Anglo-Saxon to respond in such a way there's a couple of things on that the, um, the bronze statue was actually cast by another Frenchman um, I'm not going to attempt his name. You can look it up. Oh, no, go on. Have a go. Um, it's, uh, it's very similar. Le Lausère. Or something like that. Sorry, French people. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't an emotional English person. It was an emotion, emotional Frenchman. And he did not kill himself um, after the statue was unva- first unveiled. He made his living in Britain making, cast, making bronze sculptures and casts of the English nobility building up to Charles I. Obviously, with the the civil war coming he decided to scarper and died in obscurity somewhere in paris also i was just looking at the statue uh, before before we started talking there is a girdle on there it's not quite in the right place it's sort of at the front of the saddle when it should actually be in the middle but there is a girdle on the statue but this story of the the, the habris of a sculpture who looks with great pride on their work realizes there's a flaw and then goes and extinguishes himself is an urban legend that I, I've not heard an earlier version of than the London version but there's other versions in London um, the, the, Welling, the statue of the Duke of Wellington outside the, exchange, the Royal Exchange in the city of London has the same story told because the sculptor there looked at it thought it looked fantastic realised he'd left the stirrups off and again took themselves off and did themselves in there's a statue of George III in Windsor Great Park where it's told again it's, a, it's an equine statue there's a there's a Big, another. These are all brass statues. There's a brass, sta- giant brass statue of a lion in a park in Reading, where, the, where it's apparently the largest 
might be the last, largest cast iron statue in Europe. And the, the man who sculpted that looked at it after it was cast and realised he got the legs wrong of the lion and went and drowned himself off, off in the Thames. So what about the fourth plinth? The fourth plinth is famously doesn't have a permanent exhibition on it. Again, the story is you have a sculptor... <laughs> can I tell this one? You can. So the, the sculptor decided to do uh, an equine statue of somebody important. Yep. He went and he had a look at the plinth and he realised he'd forgotten to make the entire statue. <laughs> there was a statue of a king or a nobleman. Um, this goes up to the actual unveiling ceremony with a brass band playing. And as the, as the curtain goes back off of this statue, the sculptor realises that he's made some mistake, like the girth, the saddle, the, the stirrups, and runs, runs down and throws himself in the Thames out of horror. Um, other rumours about the plinth are that it's being saved for a statue of Elizabeth II for when she dies and a statue's put there. And if you Google Queen Elizabeth II fourth plinth, you'll find a very handy mock-up that the Daily Mail did of a giant full-colour queen standing in uh, Trafalgar Square. If they're keeping the protocol, that wouldn't happen because it's like I said, it's imperial heroes and military heroes. Uh, but who knows? The rules have changed greatly, and the fourth plinth probably will always remain empty now, so that people can make statements on it. Well, it's, it sounds as though there's a spectrum going on here. At the one end, we've got legend, and at the other end, we've got dull historical fact. And somewhere in the middle, um, it, it seems as though the only reason to start checking this stuff out is if the facts are sufficiently salacious to warrant further investigation. I think so. Um, I mean, the reason why the fourth plinth is actually empty is I think whoever was funding the project there ran out of money and, and people didn't quite know what to do with it. But nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants... Well, unless you do enjoy stories of crap administration, which some of us do, then no, you don't. So how, how do you go about... And is it, is it even particularly interesting to find out the truth behind an urban legend? If you're me, it is... One, well, one thing I learned when I was researching and writing the Urban Legends book is it's actually really difficult to get to the truth because a lot of these things happened a long time ago and even something that happened relatively recently, there's multiple versions of that story and this is an important thing to know about when you think about myth and folklore is people often don't speak in truth, they speak in narrative and I think maybe that's how these stories spread people incorporate stories into how they speak so they can communicate what they're thinking more easily without actually telling any sort of historical truth or even swerving historical truth. I think the story of the suicidal sculptors come about from people seeing an anomaly and explaining it with, well, the sculptor must have got that wrong. And that's why that's like that. That's actually wrong. Or Well, and yet, and yet they didn't. It was a complete fabrication. Yeah, I think where that could have come from is the idea of the hybristic artist someone who's so arrogant about their works and then they see a, a mistake and they can't just accept their mistake they have to go and punish themselves OK, well how, how do you go about digging into this? I imagine if uh, things uh, set off on the wrong foot in terms of fact versus <laughs> fiction fairly quickly you're going to have to dig through acres of fictional narrative before you can get to anything else Well there's, there's a number of ways of doing it there's a, there's a story of the demons of Cornhill there's a Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com building on Cornhill in the city of London that has 
two incredibly incredibly intimidating she-demons sitting on it and the explanation for that is that it's next to the church St Peter's Court Hill and the idea was that when the building when this building was being extended it was extended into some of the church property the church said you cannot do this you cannot extend onto our land so they had to redesign the entire building the architects or builders so as revenge these demons were put overlooking the church glaring down as revenge and there's lots of different revenge stories of of this that one because it was a very clear building and it didn't happen very long ago this is like 1889 the building was rebuilt and reconstructed i could find the church record the parish records of the church they're at the london metropolitan archive and go through the actual parish register and read of the time when it actually happened interestingly there was a legal dispute about the boundaries of the building but it wasn't as easy as as simple as a verger or vicar going oi no rebuild the building it was like a dispute and a haggling about buying some land and then arguing about there was a party wall dispute that brilliant thing where you've got a wall and you don't know who's responsible for the wall so the two people are going no you're responsible for the wall you're responsible for the wall and ultimately there was a there was an agreement to buy a small piece of land to extend that building i then looked at the architect of the building and found that the ceramicist who um designed the demons was a guy called William Neatby he's sort of a forgotten art nouveau arts and craft genius who created these incredibly sensual and sometimes really scary tiles and sculptures all over London he's responsible for the um, for the meat aisle of aisle it's not the wrong word the meat gallery in Harrods with all these brilliant tiles of hunting scenes and he, he did the exterior of the, the the fox an anchor I think it is in Clerkenwell near Smithfield Market where the foxes actually look like, you know, yowling hyenas from hell rather than foxes. So the, the demons of Cornhill were his first ever commission. And um, I think people have looked at them and thought, well, how the heck, wh- why? Why are they there? And to let this narrative of it's by the church, maybe something happened, there was a dispute and they're there to punish people. And that's a very popular story. I don't know if you heard recently, there's a story about a house in Kensington where the people who own this house wanted to do something to it, build a... Build a build a loft building or extend it or build a basement and because of the complaints of their neighbours they weren't allowed to do that they couldn't get planning permission to improve their house in whichever way they wanted to so instead they painted it white and red bright white and red stripes and that actually did happen there's photographs of it uh, what that is it is it's called ostension in folklore it's the idea that a story that isn't true, and the Demons of Cornhill story, as far as we know, isn't true, but it is a great story, but people remember it or even just pick up the spirit of it somehow and uh, repeat it. So these people were fed up that they couldn't extend the house in the way they wanted, so they painted it, you know, toothpaste coloured with white and red stripes. Now, your style of delivery and uh, the, the way you hold your head suggests to me that you do tours. I, I do occasionally do tours, yes. <laughs> I do have one coming up in May. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's part of the British Academy uh, Literary Week, which is on fairy tales of London. I was commissioned by them to do a sort of fairy tale and legends of London walk, which I'm covering old and new stories, so London Bridge to Crossbones Graveyard, stopping and meeting the poet Tom Shivers. He's going to be talking about stories of the Woolbrook, walking up a little bit and then meeting uh, a local expert on mythical London called Rob Stevenson he's going to be talking about the London Stone I'll be going past the burial place of Dick Whittington through the city up to Dirty Dick's pub that has its own story attached to it so it'll be sort of sights of London fairy tale and legend I think it's about a two and a half hour walk it should be a lot of fun uh, because of doing it for the British Academy I've been able to go a bit crazier and uh, get some other people involved so it's really exciting I'm imagining as a guest on somebody else's tour you must be a nightmare 
I've mostly behaved. <laughs> I really want to hear about the occasions upon which you have corrected somebody. Or maybe you've just been aching to correct them. What howlers have you had? Well, not on a tour, but once I was at a... Um, I was at the London Transport Museum at a, quiz, at a quiz night, and one of the questions... I can't remember what the question was, but I think they said the question was Londoner Lewis Carroll wrote the poem Tiger Tiger and obviously as any any fool know William Blake wrote Tiger Tiger so I did actually as the swattiest kid in the class stick my hand up I was a couple of drinks in at this point and and corrected them they didn't believe me and the compare with the microphone said didn't you learn anything at school because and then I got a, a slight grudging apology about 10 minutes later to be honest it's not a great thing to do. You never feel good about yourself. You feel good in the immediate moment, but then never too good about yourself afterwards. <laughs> we will be back in just a moment. We're going to take a moment to recognise the support of our sponsors, Audible.com, who keep us where we are, uh, in your ears. And I've asked my guest to pick out something that he would recommend uh, from Audible.com. Uh, if you like the sound of it, you can sign up yourself. And it's, as we know, an audiobook service. You get a, a monthly audiobook or two to download, depending on which package you pick. And by way of giving it a whirl, you can get an audiobook for free. Uh, sign up for your 30-day free trial by going to audible.com forward slash Londonist. And uh, if you're in want of ideas, here's a good place to start. Well, the, um, the, the biggest influence in urban legend writing was an American professor called Jan Harold Brumbrald. Uh, his book, uh, Too Good to Be True, is his, which is his encyclopedia of urban legends, is available on Audible, and I would thoroughly recommend it, as I would reading any of his books. If you want to see a picture of the no longer overcoated fellow that I'm talking to, <laughs> I, I won't tell you the manner in which he's just adjusted himself either at the mention of photography taking place. Um, you can see pictures of all our guests on Instagram. Just find the London Out Loud stream. We have shuffled down in the last moment or two to St James's Park where the early summer blossom is out on the trees and the sun is shining on the verdant area here and it's less windy and there's less traffic and fewer ambulances. How we've achieved that in a few hundred yards I don't know but it's much more pleasant here. And uh, a controversy has sparked up between us as we've been walking over which is about London Stone. And I have been... uh, Well, you're going to make your mind up, listener. I've been asserting that London Stone does not take the definite article and my guest isn't buying it at all. I've always referred to it as the London Stone. There's a lot of stones in London. You wouldn't want it mixed up with Code Stone or the Millennium Stone of Mottingham. So I, I think it's safe and right to call it the London Stone. This, this is a cavalier attitude towards the definite article. Bring it. Uh, hopefully there will be a comment which will set us straight, and I brace myself for it. I, I wanted to ask uh, you, of course you were focusing on urban London legends. Are there sub-urban London legends? Urban legend is uh, it's like a generic term for contemporary folklore. Uh, of course, there are legends in suburban London. Um, if you want to say the Beast of Sydenham is a, is a recent one where big people have been seeing big cats in Sydenham or the Beast um, or the Big Cat of Enfield. Where there's people, there's stories and there's legends and urban legends. So, yeah, it's like an urban legend. Often the settings aren't urban at all. With legend, the, the, the essence, obviously, is that there's some element of fictionalisation going on within it, and maybe it captures a truth through that fiction. But do you find yourself getting to the root of an urban legend and discovering that it's 100% accurate and correct and uh, being disappointed? Well, it's not really happened yet. The disappointment, like with the, with the demons of Cornhill, there was a dispute 
um, but it doesn't match the urban legend. What I said in my book is that to try and find the truth of an urban legend is like trying to find a gun that isn't smoking. You need, or you, unless you can find a piece of paper that said, ha yes, I did this. Or you could dig up the people involved and rush, shake their corpses and say, did it happen like that? You're never really going to know what was going through people's heads and what wasn't documented. All you can do is try and be a historian and look at the evidence that is there and see whether it verifies the legend. So you've got to be quite an easygoing sort of person on one level, haven't you? Because I could imagine uh, if, if I were setting myself this sort of challenge, I'd drive myself nuts until I found a definitive answer. Well, it's a lot of fun anyway, to be honest. If you enjoy flicking through dusty books and reading old guidebooks of London and seeing what the latest cobblers is that someone's been saying about London, it's a fun job. Some things can be disproven, um, like the the sculptor killing themselves because they left the girdle off of Charles I's statue. That's a cavalier attitude to think that happened. (laughs) I hope you're proud of yourself. that, That just came to me. I quite like that one. Um, but you can see that A, the girdle is there and um, that the, the sculptor died starving in Paris long after the Civil War. So you can definitely prove that one isn't true. Others, it's a messy area and you find yourself in interesting places researching them anyway. So it, it's, 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 it's an enjoyable pastime. I don't mind if I... If I was a fisherman, I wouldn't be upset if I didn't catch a fish. I just enjoyed looking at the water. As mentioned, we're going to head towards the controversially named piece of rubble. On the way there, though, can we do a a little bit of a whistle-stop tour around London and grab some urban legends on the way? Yeah, well, very quickly, there's the legend of the Hackney Bear, first sighted in the late 1980s uh, by a bunch of mid-teenage boys around Hackney Marshes on Boxing Day, I think, in 1983. They reported seeing a bear, and this actually prompted and sparked a bear hunt. And over the silly season between Christmas and New Year, Hackney Police and the Metropolitan Police were involved in flying a helicopter and having men with rifles going across Hackney Marshes in the freezing cold and snow trying to catch a bear. Until about three days later they realised that this was all a bit silly and they went home and were a bit fed up. What happened afterwards was a man owned up and said that he'd gone to a fancy dress party on Boxing Day dressed as a bear and he was actually responsible. The police said this operation cost millions of pounds, we'd be very interested to speak to you. But this man, his name was Ron, disappeared again. If you fast forward to about three or four years ago, the Hackney Bear, or the Beast of Hackney, was sighted again in some woods by the River Lee further up along the banks of the River Lee in Hackney. Um, and a woman took a photograph of it, a woman called Helen, and it looks like, for all the world, like a miniature bison or a big hairy lump going through the undergrowth of the, the woods by the River Lee. A day or so later, the former, a former member of Cooler Shaker went to the the Hackney Gazette to say that, oh no, that wasn't the the Beast of Hackney, that wasn't the Hackney Bear, that was my giant Newfoundland dog. Here he is, Um, and it must have been him. We didn't know that he got out, but it must have been him that this person photographed. And by the way, my wife's got a small uh, children's clothing business we just want to mention in the report. So that's East London. Um, Sorry, how did that get, how did that little bit get in there? What? That's East London. Oh, we're you're doing, uh, sorry, we're I, doing a tour. I beg your pardon. I thought that you were just advertising your wife's clothing business. No, no, no. That's, that that's was the cooler shaker. The, the cooler shaker guy was. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, we my wife runs a business. I thought that was the most blatant product placement I've ever heard in my life. Uh, no, I wouldn't do that. No, no, no. I don't. I do no product placement in my book. London Urban Legends: A Corpse on the Tube. At all. If you buy it and read it, you'll see that. Uh, let us move on with our speedy tour. 
Yeah, so South London... Is... Can, I, can I just reflect of the uh, legal consequences of what seemed to be shaping up there between the police and the fancy dress fella? If you think about all the people who go to fancy dress parties in their various costumes, if any one of those could spark a police inquiry and then they want to talk to you about it and uh, send you the bill? Uh, well, it's, it, this was an anonymous phone call to the Sun newspaper... The Met spoke to all the local sort of costume hire places. I don't think any of them were actually missing a bear costume. But it was pointed out by one costume hire place that the Hackney Bear, whatever it was, had allegedly left footprints on a little island in the River Lee. And bear costumes do not come with bare feet. So it might be another made-up story to seal a bit of glory. On we go with our tour. Central London, let's go there with the London Stone. There's a great origin myth of London, really popular sort of from the medieval period up until the Victorian period, that before London existed, the Roman city of Londinium, there was a a city called New Troy, founded by Brutus after the destruction of Troy in the Trojan Wars. They, in the legend, they, they got in a ship and they did travel to a land beyond the Pillars of Hercules, and this is entirely legendary, until they arrived in Britain landed apparently in Devon and the town I can't remember its name the hippie town in Devon oh Totnes Totnes there's a Brutus stone in Totnes thank you and uh, then founded New Troy somewhere a lot of people think it was in in the city of London roughly where the old Billingsgate fish market is now near there is an object known as London Stone or the London Stone (laughs) Victoria Are are you expecting me to save you in the edit Maybe it's me who needs to. No, I'm just acknowledging the difference. Antiquarians, uh, especially particularly Victorian ones, who loved the idea of Imperial Britain being founded by legendary figures, even if they were on the losing side of the Trojan War, really loved this idea of New London being New Troy, and looked at the London Stone and thought, maybe this is the Palladium, the statue of Athena that, that protected Troy up until the sack of Troy. Maybe Brutus brought it with him. Let and put it in London to protect London, and through the through the millennia that have passed, it's become rained on and knocked by cartwheels. It was moved out of the middle of Cannon Street to the corner of St Swithin's Church because it kept knocking carts over. Damaged in the Great Fire of London and worn down until now, all we have is this stone, and we now call it the London Stone because it's a stone in the centre of the city of London. Maybe once it was the Statue of Athena that defended Troy, but not very well. They lost eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not knocking a goddess, especially not in the St James's Park, which is dedicated quite a lot to Diana, I think. I'm not knocking Greek goddesses here. We dawdle towards a close. How should we finish? We need a, a fireworks display of a London legend. OK. Um, scary one, funny one. Do you think people one day will think the Wobbly Bridge was fiction? I don't, that's a good question. It's actually the whole thing of giving places certain names, because I still call the Wobbly Bridge the Wobbly Bridge, and that's obviously two, oh, 15 years ago they might do or they might still feel a little bit of a wobble lucky that was recorded I remember watching uh, an architect from Ovarup standing there explaining when they had to support it to stop it wobbling and the journalist asked him are you a very embarrassed man and he completely said yes I'm a very embarrassed man what's interesting about the wobbly bridge actually I think it's interesting I'm not telling you it's interesting is the padlocks that are on it I don't know if you've noticed the padlocks this has happened in Paris, it happens in Venice, it's happened in France, and it started happening in London where couples on holiday, they buy a padlock. They put the padlock somewhere, usually on a bridge, so they can throw the key in the water. It's to sort of demonstrate that we love each other, we're going to mark, we're going to write our names on a padlock or engrave our names on a padlock, lock it to a bridge and then put the key in the water to show that we can never ever be separated. 
and that's happening a lot on Blade of Light or the Wobbly Bridge. Ah, now I've, I've seen a bit of this going on on a chain link fence up at uh, Shoreditch High Street that's station. I thought that was uh, bicycle theft in its late stages. That's hipsters appropriating the folklore, I think. I think it's genuine on the Wobbly Bridge. You can even see things called love locks that are deliberately cast love heart padlocks that people leave on there. So that is, in itself is a piece of folklore of people marking their love in this unique way. Actually, that nearly destroyed a bridge in Paris. It was so weighed down with padlocks. In London, apparently, um, John Clark, who formerly worked at the Museum of London, and he's an expert on London archaeology and a very good writer on the subject, he gave a talk a little while ago where he said that what's actually happening is every now and again someone goes along with some bolt croppers, takes these symbols of undying love and, and lops them off to stop the bridge being damaged and chucking them in the river. So your undying love, well, it is dying. It's getting knocked off by a City of London or borough of Southwark employee, depending which side does which. And um, future archaeologists could find themselves very, very confused when they find a collection of broken padlocks on the bed of the Thames and don't know where they've come from and will probably no doubt invent their own narratives to explain them. Well, we have the, the beachcombers turning uh, those old pipe pieces into mm. jewellery, so I think we know what people in the future are going to be wearing as well. People with very strong necks in the future, yeah. Um, and, of course, that will go very, very nicely with the, uh, the clothing from your wife's fashion business, which by then will be an empire. <laughs> <laughs> My wife doesn't have a fashion business. <laughs> it's a legend. The book, which is another legend, it's, it exists, is uh, Urban London Legends, The Corpse on the Tube by Scott Wood in I'm, I'm about to say in all good bookshops is that the case it's it was when it first came out it's uh, it's about a year and a half old now still very good um it's in bookshops amazon or history press's website definitely you can get any e-version or a printed version and a quick reminder of that talk and walk that we were talking about that's um on the 13th it's during uh, british academy literary week so look at the british academy website i think it's the 13th of may can't remember off the top of my head begins at two o'clock at the spike at london bridge you need to go to the british academy website to register to go it's free but you need to register uh, well good, good luck with the talk the walk and the book scott with thanks very much thank you and that's all for this week my thanks for this week to my guest Scott Wood and to Bernie Barclay theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea I'm in Quentin Wolf. from